right, you have one minute. You have one minute. Start moving that. If you're listening online right now while we're doing that, I know you can hear my voice. If you have a prayer concern that you want to share with us and let us know, please send that to OCCMarty at Comcast.net. Again, if you're online and you have a prayer request, feel free to send it to me at OCCMarty at Comcast.net, and we'll try to respond back to you with our prayers. All right, 10 seconds. So we are in the middle of a series called, actually we're at the end of a series called For Such a Time as This. When we started this series, it probably sounded like hyperbole or overstatement when I said things like, the world stands on a precipice and we're in danger of falling into greater darkness in our world. And yet, who would have imagined the events that transpired since we started this series five weeks ago? And I think this day few of us would say the world is, well, most of us would agree, it's a dangerous time. I want to talk to you today in this final message from this series about a character in the Bible who faced a, well, a time of great uncertainty and difficulty. Uh, She is one of those characters that I've always really appreciated, and uh, she's in the Old Testament, and her, she is, she's the character Esther, and her story is a fascinating one. There's an entire book dedicated to the story of Esther. I wish I had time just to read the whole story to you today, because Uh, It's a remarkable book, and I encourage you, uh, as a result of this sermon, make sure you try to read that book this week. It's a short read uh, uh, in terms of reading time. You probably could read the whole book in probably 35, 40 minutes, and and probably you should do that. But it's a historical story about an attempt to annihilate the Jewish people while they're in exile— And Esther tells the story of how that plan is ultimately thwarted. There are some key players that I want to introduce you to in the story. First of all, there's a character, a powerful Persian king named Xerxes. You can look him up. There's a lot of things about him that are quite fascinating in his story. One thing about King Xerxes is he liked to throw elaborate parties. And his parties weren't like on Friday or Saturday night. His parties went on for days and even weeks. He was a partying kind of king. And it was in the midst of one of those parties that they were about a week into their revelry where King Xerxes had this, well, what he thought was a fantastic idea. In a drunken stupor, he orders his wife, who is named Vashti, he orders her to dance for his friends, wearing her crown, which doesn't sound so bad, except when you uh, look into this text a little bit, you see that he probably meant wearing only her crown. So this was obviously something she had no desire to do. And when she refuses to go before the king and to dance for his friends, 
she finds herself stripped of her title queen, and she is effectively banished. (laughs) She's never to be in the king's presence ever again. She's made, in a sense, homeless. And we don't know if there was any kind of separation arrangement or not. Probably not in that time. Well, the king is with all of his buddies at this party. And here they are in their revelry, and they they need to figure out now that the king got rid of his wife, uh, what's the king going to do now? And it didn't take long for the king to realize he was going to be kind of lonely. So his buddies had this, this, what they thought was a remarkable idea. They said, king, you know, you're a powerful king. You own all this land. Here's what we'll do. We're going to go out and search for all of the beautiful virgins across the land, and we'll select them, and we'll bring them all back and put them into your harem. Well, all these drunk guys thought that was a great idea. (laughs) The virgins across the land, probably not so much. A search for a replacement queen was underway. Now, there was a young Jewish woman named Esther. Her uncle Mordecai worked for King Xerxes. And um, she's chosen to be a part of this group that's headed to King Xerxes. Now, I want to clear up a couple things. This is no fairy tale. (laughs) Esther had no agency, no ability to defy the king. In this time period, obviously, uh, saying no uh, was going to have bad consequences. Uh, she didn't, there's nothing in the text that indicates she even went willingly, but she went kind of as a person who was a slave, who felt like they had no other choice but to go. And so she went, but this wasn't a pretty love story. This was a kind of ugly event. She's taken into the harem, and it turns out, of all the land's young, beautiful virgins, the king likes her the best. And she's named the queen. Now, one thing that Esther doesn't do, probably at the urging of her uncle Mordecai, she doesn't reveal where she's from. The king doesn't know that she's one of the exiled Jewish people that have been taken captive by Xerxes. So he has no idea her nationality. And quite frankly, Xerxes doesn't really care. He just likes that she looks nice. But Mordecai has done that for a reason. He's counseled her not to tell, likely because he knows there's a lot of anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish feeling in the land. This shows up in several different Bible stories. It shows up in the story of Daniel. Uh, There were people who were upset that these Jewish exiles came into the court of the king, and and here basically they they were captured. Uh, In essence, they were kind of like slaves, and, and yet they were rising to places and positions of prominence, and go figure, right? The people who had always been with Xerxes were like, hey, that's not fair. <laughs> why, are you, why are you letting them have power and influence? And, and I don't have it. And so there was a lot of animosity towards these Jewish exiles that had been captured and brought into the land of Persia. And this is probably why Mordecai says, don't tell anyone that you're a Jew. So she does it. Well, let me introduce you to another character in the story. And this character is a rich nobleman. He was probably there with 
King Xerxes during the drunken party. And he is rich. In fact, by all accounts, Haman is probably uh, one of the three or four richest people in all of Persia. He has great wealth. And he comes to King Xerxes, his buddy, with the plan. You see, when I talk about that anti-Semitic feeling and not liking these exiles, well, no one hates them more than Haman. And he says to the king, King, I've got this great idea. <laughs> and here's what's going to happen. I will give you a vast amount of money into your treasury if you will grant me and pass a law that says that on a certain date, me and all of my buddies can annihilate these Jewish people. And the king says, well, what's your beef with the Jewish people, more or less, right? He's kind of probably wondering what's going on, and, and we don't get to know what Haman says to him. All we know is that Haman, uh, the king, sees all that money and says, well, what do I care uh, what you do to some exiles? Sure. And he has this law passed among the Medes and Persians. Now, I need to tell you, before we get into the text, one last thing. Remember the story of Daniel in the lion's den? Well, the king in that story has to deal with a, a similar kind of law, that anyone who prayed to anyone but the king would be thrown in the lion's den. And you always probably wondered, well, why didn't that king just overturn the law? He's the king. Well, there was this weird quirk in the legal system of the Medes and Persians. And in order to make people understand the importance of a law, they had this rule that said, once a law is passed, it cannot be undone. That was their law. It can't be changed. There was no process to change a law. Once it was passed, it was passed. It was etched in stone. If you said the penalty for praying to another god was being thrown in the lion's den, there was nothing else you could do. That's what the penalty would be. That's going to come into play in the story, the laws and the rules of the Medes and the Persians. So once King Xerxes has established that, that this date is coming, that date is going to come. And that law is not going to be overturned. And Esther and Mordecai and all of the other Jewish exiles, they face genocide and annihilation. They faced, that be uh, they faced it before, and they would face it again after. Well, let's pick up the story now in the book of Esther, chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, remember, he's a Jewish man, he's the uncle of Esther, Mordecai tore his clothes. He put on sackcloth. He wore ashes. He went out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. <laughs> when Esther learned about Mordecai, she was in great distress. <laughs> she sent him clothes for him to put on instead of sackcloth and ashes. But he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned one of the king's eunuchs and ordered him to Find out what was troubling her uncle Mordecai and why. Verse 6 says, so Mordecai told this eunuch everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, the law that could not be changed. That had been 
published in the city of Susa. He asked him to show it to Esther to explain it to her. And then he gave this instruction to the eunuch. Tell Esther to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy, to plead with him for her people. Now the eunuch went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. But she says this to the eunuch and says, take this message back to Mordecai. All of the king's officials and all the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned by the king has but one law. They will be put to death the rules of the Medes and Persians. There was only one exception. Unless the king extended the golden scepter to them and spares their life. And then Esther makes a comment, but 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. One can only speculate what the king was doing in the rest of the time, but it's safe to say that Esther was feeling uh, very powerless and unimportant. Now, the risk for Esther is real. We already saw what the king did to Vashti, <laughs> making her an exile and homeless. And in this case, she has every uh, reason to believe that she really will probably be killed if she walks into the king's presence. And she has little reason to suspect that he's not going to kill her. Esther's words are reported back to Mordecai. And Mordecai sends this message back to Esther. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, Relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. I want you to take real close note of these next few words. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. I want to pause in the sermon just for a minute on the text. We chose this sermon series title for such a time as this because we actually believe something as the, the leaders of the church, and that is that God has assembled all of us, the people that he needs to finish his task and complete his task and accomplish his task here, are here. It's me, it's you. It's not an accident that you're here today. We're here for a purpose. We're here for a reason. God wants us uh, to be here. Uh, Mordecai is saying to Esther, Esther, it's not an accident all these things happen. God put you in the place where you are so that when the need arose, and God knew the need was going to arise, when it happened, God would have his people positioned to do the right thing. And Mordecai says, Esther, God's the one who's put you in this place for such a time as this. And friends, I don't know if you understand this, but whoever you are, whatever your flaws are, whatever your sins are, whatever your strengths are, I want you to get that God has put you in this place at this time for such a time as this for his purpose to be accomplished through us. 
not in spite of us, but through us. You're important to God's plan. This is what Esther is told by Mordecai, and it's the message I want you to hear. Now, Esther is about to do something that we are not always comfortable doing. She's going to take a risk. She's going to put the things that maybe she would have wanted at risk for the good of someone else. Right? Her life is, at least she has food and protection in the palace. She has some of her needs that are met. She's going to put all of that at risk. We, as Christians, when we really understand what it means to fellowship, we will understand that sometimes we take great risks for one another. We put our wants and desires aside for the good of others. It might sound like an odd thing to say, but I want to take you back to the first century. Several years ago, I had a chance to, to go to the city of Rome, and beneath the city are the catacombs. They're Think underground graveyards, right, where people are buried under the sea. They go on for miles and miles and miles. What was fascinating as I walked down through the catacombs with our guide is um, there were symbols on the wall, frequently symbols of, of Jonah and the whale, the idea of, of uh, uh, God carrying us where he wants us to be. Interesting idea. And, uh, of course, the symbols of the ichthus, the fish that early Christians used to symbolize that they were, uh, they were Christians, and the story began to unfold of what happened in the city of Rome when the persecution became the worst for the Christians. They would gather on the Lord's Day down in those tombs, those catacombs, surrounded by the dead, the living Christians gathered. It was a safe place for them. And when they were in that space, they could sing praises to God as loud as they wanted. And literally, while Roman nobles lived in palaces above those catacombs and, and were trying to exterminate the church and exterminate Christians, Christians were down under those, in the bowels, if you will, of the city of Rome. They were praising God and they were praying and they were seeking the Lord. And this is what I want you to gather in this message on the power of fellowship. When those Christians in that place gathered together, taking their very lives at risk to do the thing that they weren't supposed to do, to worship one God, the only true God, they also would share information about where the persecution was happening and what to avoid, and people who were having a hard time getting in, uh, having food, and they shared food with each other. They shared a kind of medical care with each other. They met each other's needs. They fellowshiped, and they prayed and they studied, and they worshiped, and they served. And within 100 years of their gathering in the bowels of Rome, the Roman Empire would fall, and Christianity would rise within 100 years. They risk everything for fellowship, <laughs> to be together as the people of God. Facing extermination, Esther takes risks for others who she doesn't even know. 
All she knows is that they are a part of the family of God, and that is enough for her. In fact, she will point the picture for the power of fellowship. And and her response points us in this powerful way towards what matters and how we can make a difference and how we can change the outcome of history, the outcome of the world. And what happens next is what empowers Esther to do everything that she does. And listen to her call. Her call is for prayer. Her call is for fasting. Her call is for fellowship. Before she takes any action, this is what she says. Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather, and this word is so important, all of the Jews who are in Susa. Gather all the followers of God. And have them pray. Fellowship, bring them together because she understands something, something that the early church will come to understand years later. When the Christians gather for prayer, things happen. The ground shakes. When believers pray in earnest, the prison doors for Peter will fly open, literally, and he will walk to freedom. Prayer The prayers of the faithful change the course of history, and governments are powerless to stop it. Rome, if anyone could have stopped the Christian movement, Rome could have, but they were powerless against the prayers of the faithful. What will change our world today is a church that is awake and praying and fellowshipping and being the church. So she says, gather all of the Jews, gather all of them, and pray fast. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. And when this is done, I will go. I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. This is incredible bravery. This is a hero in every sense of the word. This is someone putting their life on the line to help the people of God. Mordecai went away. He carried out all of Esther's instructions. Esther got involved in solving the problem. Understand that for change to come, it takes engagement. What I think is also interesting is how Esther, who has almost no power in that society at the time, she uses the things that she has to cause a change. Listen to how the story plays out. You have to jump ahead a little bit, but uh, what happens is that she tells King Xerxes, when he extends the scepter and protects her when she comes before him, I have a request for you, king. Here's the request. Would you let me throw you a dinner party? <laughs> Can I throw you a dinner? And, uh, and I'll tell you what, why don't you bring that really rich guy Haman along as, your, as the other guest? Boy, the king is so flattered. Well, sure, if you want to make me dinner, that's a nice thing. Yeah, you know. 
It's kind of gotten reversed, right? Usually, like, you make dinner for each other before you become the queen, but that's not how it happened here. So she's like, hey, let's have a nice dinner together. And it had been 30 days since he saw her last, and so he probably thought, hey, that's, that's a nice idea. That could, that could go really well. So he um, goes to dinner. At the end of that, he says, what's your request? What do you want? And she says, oh, I just want you to come for dinner again tomorrow. <laughs> so he comes back the next day, and he brings old Haman and old Haman, he is feeling really good about himself. I mean, he's about to wipe out all of the Jews. He's buddy-buddy with the king and queen. And the only thing that bugs him is this one guy, Mordecai, this Jewish man, never shows him any respect. So he says, you know what I'm going to do tonight? He was in such a good mood after that first dinner. He had this big pole erected outside of his house. And his plan was when it came time to kill all these Jewish people, he was going to have old Mordecai impaled on that pole. Well, it's time for dinner. We pick up the story in chapter 7, verse 1. So the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet. And as they were drinking wine, the king really liked to do that a lot. On the second day, the king again asked, Queen Esther, Esther, what is your petition? It'll be given to you. What's your request? Even up to half my kingdom, it will be granted. Then Queen Esther answered, if I found favor with you, your majesty, if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. Now, if we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, who is he? Where is he? What man has dared to do such a thing? And then the big moment of reveal, right? Esther said, it was an adversary, an enemy, this vile Haman. Paul Harvey would say, now you know the rest of the story. <laughs> Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The king got up in a rage. He left his wine and he went out into the palace garden. Why was the king so upset? Not just because what Haman wanted to do. The king was upset because he knew the law of the Medes and Persians. And once the law is enacted, it has to go forward. And how was he now going to protect his wife? You see, they couldn't protect their friends, not even their family, from these laws. So he is upset, and he storms out, leaving Haman for the moment with Esther. Haman, understanding that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. And just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, will you even molest the queen while she is with me in this house? And as soon as that word left the king's mouth, the servants came in, they covered Haman's face. <laughs> and then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, you know, there's a pole reaching to a height of 50 cubits that stands right next to Haman's house. <laughs> he had it set up for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. 
The king said, impale Haman on it. So they impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai. And then the king's fury subsided. It's interesting, it doesn't say then that Esther's fury subsides. And I'm not going to read the rest of the story to you, save to say that, that what happens is they pass a second law. And this law just says that the Jewish people have a right to defend themselves on the day that all these people come to kill them. And, of course, Esther makes sure the people are ready to defend themselves. And what turned out, what was going to be the annihilation of the Jews actually becomes the annihilation of all those people that had come against them, that wanted to see them dead. It's a pretty gruesome ending to the story, so it's definitely beyond PG, so read that ending for yourself at the end of Esther. Esther's story tells us something important. One, even when things seem difficult and impossible, God can make a way. Two, while sometimes God works in miraculous ways like he did under King Hezekiah when Sennacherib threatened Jerusalem, and in a single night he wiped out, God wiped out Sennacherib's army with an angel during the night, sometimes God delivers that way. More often, God delivers through people, through you and through me. He works through his people to accomplish his will. And God is always looking for servants who are willing to follow him. What makes someone valuable to God is not their physical stature and strength. It's not their wealth. It's not their intelligence. It's a willing spirit. This is what he found in a little shepherd boy named David, remember? Who just liked to sing songs to God. Boy, if he finds a willing spirit and someone who loves him, he'll do incredible things through them. In this case, it's what he did through a, a woman named Esther, who was essentially brought into the palace as a kind of slave but who God used to save an entire people. Who knows? What's God going to do through you, through me? How many might he save through you? We do live in a perilous time. The church stands at a moment where the words have never been truer that are written in scripture. Wake up, O sleepers, and rise from the dead so that Christ can shine on you. You see, Satan loves a sleeping church. And the last two years have lulled the church into a kind of sleep. And it is time to wake up. It is time to be about our master's business. It is time to follow his leading and his word and his will to be the church in the world. For this is the truth that you have to understand. The darkness of our world cannot stand against the light of Jesus Christ. And his light will always pierce the darkness. 
And his light burns in you and in me. Let us shine brightly for such a time as this. Now, it's possible that you're here this morning and you've never yet accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. If you've not made that decision, that is the most important decision you will ever make in your life. Why not make it today? As we stand and we sing our hymn of invitation.